0: Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and
1: this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show: brains,
0: bees, and stomata. Joining us today is Andrew Westfall on the Stardust mission.
1: Also, you'll be able to find out what ivory is made out of. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Rocktron 5000, and the world famous question of the week. Coming up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Back to perfect Grox. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Still January, right? January is probably the best time of the year. The whole year lies ahead of you. So much promise, so much... Uh... Yeah, so much hope. Here's our animal fact of the day. I look forward to the animal fact all week because I'm just surprised at how many animals there are on this planet. Yeah, more than human. So when are we going to do a plant fact of the week? Is-
0: okay, maybe next week. I'll do something <laughs> with wasabi or
1: something. Oh,
0: so it turns out Honeybees have hairy eyes. Of all the bee species, they're the only ones that have hairy eyes.
1: Okay, so are they like most insects that have compound eyes? Yeah,
0: they have compound eyes. Okay,
1: so all of the little individual eyelets are (laughs) are hairy. Yes. Do you have hairy eyes? (laughs) Hair on pretty much every other part of my body.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I do have a story related to bees today. How many times have you gone through puberty? (laughs)
1: Well, the first time was rough. The uh-huh. second time, a little bit easier. This third time, I think I finally got it down. So you're not the alpha male, right? <laughs> I'm like the zeta male.
0: <laughs> so it turns out bees undergo through two developmental phases. Uh-huh. Uh The first one happens within the first seven or eight days of their life, where they transition from a baby into being a housekeeper. Basically, they maintain the hive. Oh, okay. That's correlated with their age. But something that happens later, and it's not so correlated with age, is when they transition into the foraging mode, where they become bees which forage for nectar and pollen. Mm -hmm. In that second phase, a series of gene expression changes occur in their brain, and that's the second time. For the first time, using microwave technology, they were able to identify how these genes are turning on and off at these two stages of the bee's life. So there's two distinct stages now.
1: They'll be ready to undergo uh, a third, third one. I mean, third time's the charm.
0: <laughs> Maybe they just turned into a female or something. <laughs> it's carried out by uh, Mr. Gene Robinson.
1: <laughs> very appropriate.
0: Yes, and it was published in our very favorite journal. My goodness. The proceedings? <laughs> of the National Academy of Sciences. pnas
1: So committed am I to the idea of the plant fact of the week that here it is, the plant fact of the week. (laughs) Yay! Plants can actually prevent the invasion of intruders by closing their stomata. They stop sweating? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in a sense, right? So the the stomata, as you might know, are those tiny pores on the leaves of plants, right? Right. They open and close, and it's thought they were just used as portholes to allow gases to come in and out. Right, water. Water, yeah. They actually can also close them in response to bacterial invaders.
0: So it can prevent them from being infected.
1: Yes. It's been shown now that by a team led by Xing Yang He of Michigan State University that Arabidopsis can detect bacterial compounds and that triggers the stomata to close. So it's an interesting defense mechanism, but it turns out that a particular plant pathogen, Pseudomonas syringae, manufactures a compound that actually forces the stomata to actually reopen. So (laughs) it's it's an ongoing battle between plants and bacterium. Uh Uh-huh. So, imagine if you could close all your sweat pores. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, then I wouldn't have to take a shower, because... <laughs> you might burn up, though. <laughs> it was uh, published in a recent edition of Cell. So Charles, what's your favorite font when you write up documents? It's got to be symbol. Symbol? <laughs> Greek letters, plus minus signs, random squiggles. That's usually the best font to choose, I think. Okay, and what size do you go for? 108 point. Oh, okay.
0: You can actually uh, do the opposite and go uh, micro. Xerox has developed a new font which is just one hundredth of an inch high. It's very useful for preventing counterfeiting and it's now being used on the $20 bill. So if you can't see it, but maybe if you had a microscope and you looked at the border next to the picture of Andrew Jackson, what you'll see is the really tiny words, uh, United States of America, 20 USA, 20 USA.
1: thought it would be something uh, novel like Kilroy was here, <laughs> but <laughs> those guys at the Treasury have no sense of humor.
0: If you look at the s- signature for the, um, some personal checks, they have these tiny words that says authorized signature uh, all over it.
1: It's a way of helping to prevent counterfeiting. So is there any special dimensions that needed to be done to create this micro font size?
0: Xerox calls it microtext, but supposedly I'm sure people can uh, install it on their computers and uh, (laughs) write really tiny documents.
1: (laughs) Hopefully it's a serif font.
0: (laughs) This is a very nice summary in Chemical and Engineering News.
1: Right, and finally, Frank, when you take a trip, how do you find your way around?
0: I follow my nose, wherever the food is, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is actually an issue for brain cells when they have to try and find their final position during development. Okay. So how do they actually migrate their way to the appropriate location, and what's the cues that are involved? It turns out that cerebral cortex is a group of cells called the Cajal-Retzius cells. They're a transient population of cells that sit at the edge of the brain and guide the development of the cortex. So this is named after our favorite neuroscientist, right? Oh, yes. Ramonio Santiago Cajal. One of the sexiest (laughs) of all neuroscientists. He's really a ladies' man, I heard. I think so, yeah. (laughs) That's for another day. What the cells do is that they actually follow a course along the meninges, Uh which is the outer shell surface covering of the brain. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that This is a previously unstudied mechanism for how cells find their way and track their way along find their final position. Right. So this group of researchers led by Victor Borrell and Oscar Marin at the Institute of Neuroscience in Alicante, Spain, Mm -hmm. also found that a gene called CXCL12 is a molecule which is actually secreted by the meninges and seems to play a key part in this process. Brain cells finding their way to the correct location...
0: So if I massage my brain, it won't help, huh?
1: Well, if you massage it with CXCL12, I think it might help a little bit. No, oh, okay. But I think the neurons will just wind up on your hand. <laughs> anyway, this is a very fascinating work. It's published in a recent edition of Nature Neuroscience.
0: And that's all for this week's look at the role of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. In a few moments, Dr. Andrew Westfall joins us to talk about stardust. So stay right there. to Berkeley Grox, well scientists have known for a long time that the solar system, the Earth, and life here on Earth are made of stardust. But where exactly it comes from and how it came here has uh, been a long time mystery until now. Today, the University of California at Berkeley is the gatekeeper of dust samples collected from NASA, and uh, scientists all over the world have been actively figuring out uh, the composition and the history behind this dust. Well joining us today here, one of the leaders of this project is uh, Dr. Andrew Westfall from uh, the Department of Physics here at Berkeley. Dr. Westfall, thanks so much here for joining us here on uh, Berkeley Grox today.
2: You're most welcome. Could you tell
0: us a little bit about this dust sample that I guess came here a little bit, a little less than a year ago here?
2: I sure will. Yeah. Stardust is a NASA mission that launched in 1999. And it is, in fact, uh, two missions in one. It uh, brought back the very first samples ever from a comet. Uh, a comet called Vilt-2 that uh, has spent most of its uh, 4.5 billion year life uh, out at the edge of the solar system in the so-called Kuiper belt That's where Pluto is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's basically a deep freeze sample of uh, this, the building blocks of the solar system. So for the very first time, we have a bona fide sample of a comet in our hands in the laboratory that we can study. Stardust also brought back about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, uh, a sample of uh, content- temporary interstellar dust uh, it's basically a solid sample of the galaxy, and we have never had a sample like this before in our hands ever to study so um we're very excited about this uh having both of these so over the last year or so we've been studying the uh cometary sample and, uh, almost 200 scientists all over the world have been studying the uh, sample from the comet and uh, the very first results have been reported just last week in uh, the journal science we had seven papers uh, in a special issue of uh, science we're really excited and uh, same time, we found some interesting mysteries and, and discovered some really interesting things about this sample. We, felt, we feel that we've really just uh, scratched the surface of what we have, and it's going to take years to, uh, to uh, understand it. Then in a little bit, I can talk about the uh, interstellar sample, if you'd like.
0: You mentioned that more, more mysteries have been uh, open as a result of this. What, what are some of the uh, interesting questions that have now arisen as a result of these uh, new samples?
2: Well, I think the most uh, the most unexpected one was the discovery, so far actually, of only one example of this particular kind of um, uh, object that was found in the cometary sample. It's uh, an object that's found in meteorites called the CAI. That's an acronym. It means calcium aluminum rich inclusion, mm. and these things are found in meteorites that come from the inner solar system. But it was completely unexpected to find an object like this in a Sample comes from the edge of the solar system in the Kuiper Belt. And what is uh, really fascinating about this is that these this is an object which is only made at very, very high temperature. And um, uh, that's quite a surprise because we expect uh, that the material that's been out at the edge of the solar system has always been cold. And so it's a real mystery now. How did these uh, samples, how did this hot stuff, the hottest minerals, in fact, that there are, Uh, get out in the edge of the uh, solar system. We just don't understand that.
0: I guess one of your major collaborators is Frank Hsu and the uh, Academia Sinica in Taiwan. They have some interesting theories about how this mineral formation um, came about. Could you perhaps uh, summarize what their conclusions were?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, Frank Hsu... And his colleagues, including uh, Sieni Shang, who is now uh, here at Berkeley, <clears throat> are feeling uh, quite uh, vindicated uh, because they made a prediction 10 years ago that uh, the samples, first samples of the comet, would contain these. Uh, And um, so uh, that is an impetus now for, to go get more samples and see if that's really true.
0: Very cool. And I understand um, the experimental setup for this process was actually quite an extraordinary feat. Um, you certainly had not just space scientists, but material scientists and uh, engineers uh, find ways to collect this dust and bring it back safely. You know, what were some of the interesting um, um, challenges in, say, uh, developing this aerogel that you used to uh, collect the dust?
2: well uh this this mission has a number of really interesting uh and unique features to it. Uh, one is that it used this uh, bizarre material called aerogel to capture particles uh both from comet and from the interstellar dust stream streaming into our solar system and uh, This is a bizarre material it's only a few times as dense as air. If you hold it in your hand it kind of you can't feel its weight it looks uh, like a ghost. <laughs> uh, It's just the most bizarre material you'll ever meet. uh, But it has the property that it can capture particles going at uh, many kilometers per second, many times the speed of a bullet, uh, in many cases practically intact. And so that is uh, uh, a unique thing about uh, this material. So uh, the other thing that's unique I would say about Stardust is that it's a sample return mission. Uh, That's not quite unique, but it is unique in the sense that this is the first time ever that we have a solid sample of material from beyond the moon that has been brought back. And uh, so it's uh, it's just uh, kind of amazing. You know, we go into our lab and we're working with these samples that have been 3 billion miles, seven years in space, they have been out beyond the orbit of Mars and have come back to Earth. It's just uh, mind-boggling. And uh, isn't wearing off, which is kind of neat. <laughs> so we're we're still uh, we're still amazed, and uh, so that's a, a really great thing about this kind of a mission, a sample return mission, is that we have these samples now in our laboratory, and if we're careful with them, and we can them and we treat them uh, uh, cautiously. We will have these samples for generations. So our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will be able to analyze these samples with instruments that we can't even imagine today. Uh, And in fact, you know, this is already happening. This process uh, already started. Some of the instruments that are being used to analyze Stardust now did not exist when the mission launched. And uh, so it's, uh, uh, Stardust has uh, played a big role in, uh, in uh, developing new kinds of analytical techniques to be able to analyze these very challenging, very small samples.
0: And so in the Stardust, uh, are, are there any organic materials that could give us some clues how uh, life may have formed?
2: Uh, yes, there are. That was uh, one of the things that was a, a bit of a surprise, in fact, that we were able to find organic materials in the uh, in the stardust samples. Uh, many people thought that this is not the kind of mission that would be able to return recognizable organic materials, but, but uh, it did. <clears throat> that was an effort led, by the way, by uh, Scott Sanford who is just down the road from us uh, at the Ames Research Center in Moffett Field mm-hmm. in the South, uh, South Bay. So that uh, was one of the papers in the science issue, was uh, reporting on the discovery of organics in comets. And this is really potentially very important because some people think that the uh, biosphere of the Earth was uh, laid down, or the materials for that were laid down by comets in the early part, uh, early uh, solar system history. We may be looking at uh, looking at the building blocks not only just of our solar system but of ourselves as well, and uh, so it's very
0: exciting. So, if we had a sample of uh, you know undisturbed uh, mineral samples on the Earth, uh, say from you know four billion years ago or five billion years ago when the uh, the planet was formed, uh, do you see any similarities between the composition of those minerals and those found uh, from the comet?
2: Well, this is what's neat about this sample is that there are no rocks that are that old on the Earth. Uh, the Earth is a geologically extremely active place, and uh, there are no rocks left over from when the Earth formed. Um, they've all been uh, melted and remelted and remelted and mixed and and uh, distilled and separated and so on. And so uh, the sample we got from the comet bears no resemblance to uh, terrestrial materials at all.
0: Wow, that's amazing okay cool and I understand um, uh, you have a online project called Stardust at home uh, could you tell us a little bit about that
2: sure so as I mentioned you know Stardust is really two missions uh, the uh, we've been talking about the cometary uh, science uh, up until now but Stardust also returned this sample of material from the local interstellar medium uh, outside of our solar system and um, the, uh, but it's a very much more challenging sample to work with, and the principal reason for that is that there are only we're expected to be a few dozen tiny interstellar dust grains uh, in the sample, and uh, uh, we know statistically how many there should be, but we don't know where they are in the collector. They, uh, the collector is about the size of a stop sign, and we need to find these uh, tiny little tracks of the interstellar dust grains somewhere in this uh, collector, and uh, we don't know where they are. So what we've done is to uh, we're, we're in the process of digitally imaging that collector, and then we've recruited uh, volunteers from all over the world, 20,000 people so far, more than that have done more than thirty million searches on these digital images to try to find the interstellar dust grains. And we already have some uh, uh, nice candidates. We don't know yet whether they're interstellar dust, but they're uh, they're promising candidates and they've also found some really interesting features. Uh, one thing that's really great is that these people are excellent. They're just, uh, they're hard-working and they're extremely talented. It's <laughs> just, just amazing. So uh, it's, uh, it's delightful to work with them, and uh, we're uh, we're really excited about this uh, project for the future.
0: Great. Um, Dr. Russell, thank you so much for your time. Are there any last words you'd like to add about uh, yourself or this project?
2: Oh, I think the main thing is that, you know, we're doing this because it's uh, so much fun, and uh, just it, we, we got into this project, in fact, because it's an irresistibly fun thing to do, and uh, we're just looking forward to having more fun doing it. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.
0: And we were just listening to Dr. Andrew Westfall on the Stardust mission. To find out more about their project, you can go to the website ssl.berkeley.edu. This is Berkeley Grok, you're listening to. In a few moments, we'll find out what Ivory is made out of, plus the world's famous question of the week. So stay right there. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, Dr. Westphal has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grockotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. And uh, this week's question is, uh, what kind of stardust? And I'll give you uh, five subjects and you can compare them uh, to the type of stardust or space material you think the most appropriately describes them. So, uh, subject number one. Um, TV uh, host, uh, Oprah Winfrey. What kind of stardust is she?
2: Oh, my goodness. Let's see. Well, um, what kind of stardust? I guess uh, a mineral called Instatite. Yeah, it's a beautiful gem-like uh, mineral.
0: Subject number two, uh, fictional character James Bond.
2: James Bond. Well, that would probably have to be nanodiamonds, uh, which uh, we think we uh, may be able to find in the Interstellar Collector.
0: Subject number three, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking.
2: Stephen Hawking, well, uh, boy, you know, it's really hard to draw analogies here, but uh, there's a very unusual mineral that's been found in Stardust, and Stephen Hawking is certainly definitely original and unusual, so it's a mineral called rotorite.
0: Subject number four, uh, California governor Arnold Schwarzenegger.
2: (laughs) Well, that would probably have to be the biggest impact in the Stardust uh, collector, which was something that was so big, it was a huge surprise. Something so big you could uh, stick your uh, stick your little finger into it. Uh, so. <laughs> Still not quite near, not nearly as big as Arnold, but uh, <laughs> the monster of the uh, collect-
0: A Forrest here with the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, you know them elephants—they the largest ant mammals in the world. They got these long, big ivory tusks. But what's it made of? Well, it's made of keratin protein and some calcium. That's why it's so hard. And why?
1: Oh, yeah, here's yeah, Bubblegum's mother. And it's all around singing the blues. But you know, if you're singing the blues, you better see the blues. And if you're going to see the blues, you got to see the light, brother. Oh, yeah. But if you don't see the light, you might need a photo down. Well, what is it? And if you know what it is, email us at grox at hotmail.com. Oh, yeah, you're not going to win anything, but you just might see the light.
0: And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at
1: hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.